Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to TheAnalysis.News. Please don't forget, a donate button, a subscribe button, a share button, and we'll be back in a second with Mark Blythe. In an article in Political.eu, Paula Tama writes that, quote, European strategic autonomy is the EU's latest catchphrase, its label for the bloc's push to increase self-sufficiency and boost its own industry in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. After the America First motto and Beijing's Made in China in 2025 strategy, it's the old continent's turn to gaze inward. But before they can implement it, leaders across the EU have to agree on what it means exactly. Tamar writes that, quote, some smaller countries are scared that this push for greater autonomy is simply going to give Franco-German industry a new edge and regulatory incentives at the expense of smaller economies. A coalition of 19 countries who call themselves, quote, friends of the single market, largely abhor what they see as protectionism in disguise. Quote, it's a license to kill small and medium enterprises, said one EU diplomat from this camp, which includes the Baltics, the Nordics, Austria, Beno-Croatia, the Czech Republic, Ireland, Malta, Portugal, Poland, Slovenia, Slovakia, and Spain. And to what extent is strategic autonomy directed at resisting U.S. pressure not to get too close to China? Tom Fairless writes in the Wall Street Journal that, quote, the struggle between the U.S. and China for global influence has come to Europe's gritty industrial backwaters, where China is steadily co-opting local economies, starting with their railroads. China overtook the U.S. as the European Union's biggest trading partner for goods last year, a historic turning point driven in part by Europeans' hunger for Chinese medical equipment and electronics during the COVID-19 pandemic. Increasingly, those goods are arriving in Europe through a new trade corridor consisting of railroads, airport hubs, and ports built with Chinese support, often as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, the giant global infrastructure effort aimed at binding China more closely to the rest of the world. And he writes that with some alarm, I guess. Now joining us to discuss what European strategic autonomy is and how European governments are handling the current crisis is Mark Blythe. He's a political economist at Brown University. He researches the cause of stability and change in the economy. And he's, he also talks about why people continue to believe stupid economic, economic ideas in spite buckets of evidence to the contrary. I should add, he's also a European. So let, let's start with the situation in the EU. Uh, you know, on the face of it, you'd think Europe would be want to be more autonomous, I guess. Uh, what, what is this about and why are so many smaller uh, European countries it seems so against it? Ooh, what is this all about? Wow. Um, hello, first of all. Um, <laughs> okay, so what's this, what's this all about? Um, it's about France. It's kind of about France. So a few years ago, I did a project with some colleagues and we produced a book called The Future of the Euro. And a guy called Mark Vale, who's a wonderful political economist, wrote this wonderful paper about France. And it's about the whole of the EU after the Euro crisis and the Euro and all that sort of stuff. And, and it had the best title, which was Europe's Middle Child. Right. So if you've ever, you know, the middle child is basically never the favorite, the one that's usually ignored, etc., etc. And France, which was very much, you know, the big country, 
particularly before Britain joined the then European Economic Community, was the one that was sort of, you know, the leader of Europe and defining what it was, etc. Yes, the Germans had the Deutschmark. Yes, they had the industrial muscle. But it was still West Germany. France was the powerful country. And the Franco-German axis was what made things work. Maybe the Italians were part of it, but probably not. That all changed. It all began to change in the early sort of 1990s. Then unification with Germany changed it further. The euro changed it further. And France began to kind of like lose its sense of self in the EU. It loses its sense of self internally because of the same sort of processes of sort of multiculturalism and immigration, etc. that other countries are dealing with. But the loss of identity as the focal point of Europe really began to sting French elites. One of the things that they would talk about in that period was gouvernement économique, economic government. So you had this idea that the Germans basically were rules, right? It's all about the 60% deficit of uh, debt to GDP, the 3% deficit, the 2% inflation, the ECB, which is rules bound with a big constitution. And all of this was basically the price of getting the Germans to abandon the Deutschmark. I mean, that's basically why we, they ended up with all those rules. But the French are basically interventionists at heart. They're the ones that had national champions. They're the ones that tried to nationalize the entire financial sector under Mitterrand. They're the ones that basically have always done industrial policy, regional policy. And even though their elites at one point changed towards this much more integrative, open capital space competitiveness that characterizes the EU, that's always been a latent part of, if you will, French elite political culture. And what's happened now with this moment of sort of the rise of China, particularly with the sort of the turn that Xi has given this, and then the rise of Trump, is it's given the European Union a wake-up call that you can't just play hide-and-seek, that you need to have your own foreign policy, you need to have your own stance on things. And this is becoming more and more apparent because essentially the way that Europe grows is the northern countries, particularly Germany and the eastern European countries, the supply chain for Germany, sell goods to the Chinese and the Americans. They're export-driven. The large consumptive economies in the, in the south, essentially Italy, Spain, and particularly France, don't really do that. You don't think French and global champions. You don't see French cars and American streets, all this sort of stuff. So they're much more dependent on global consumption. But those rules really benefit the exporters. And all the inability to run deficits really hurts those domestic economies that are dependent on consumption. So this has been a kind of structural fault in the Eurozone for a long time. So what the French see with strategic autonomy, this new idea, is that we need to have industrial policy. We need to have our own PPP. We need to have our own defense. We need to have all these things. We need to plan the economy more. We need to have strategic investments. We need to have our own thing and this, that, and the next thing. And you can see the sort of the government economic, the old interventionist thing coming back. And in a sense, given the world as it is currently composed, it totally makes sense. But it flies in the face of everything that the EU is built on, particularly for those smaller states. So that's essentially where this is coming from. But why do the smaller states think that with this kind of more industrial policy and interventionism and so on, and apparently the Germans are now warming up to this whole idea, and there's some big joint infrastructure programs now in the works between France and Germany. I mean, Germany already dominates the smaller countries of the EU, and France gets a piece of that, I guess. Uh, but they think it's going to get worse with, under this slogan, which nobody quite knows what it actually means in practice. Well, let's turn to what it means first of all. Essentially, it means 
To the Germans, it means we want to be able to sell our BMWs to the Chinese and not talk about anything to do with human rights. And at the same time, pretend we are the nice guys. For the French, that's no longer acceptable because they don't sell the cars to the, to the Chinese. And therefore, they feel freer to point out that what's going on in the West of the country is human rights abuses. So a lot of this is circling around basically Europe's ability to actually act as a coherent actor on the European stage and actually have a position on what is our position on China's treatment of the Uyghurs? What is our position on Hong Kong? And at the moment, it plays second fiddle, fiddle to trade, right? It's a mercantilist agenda, primarily driven by Germans and the Eastern European supply chain countries. But think about those smaller countries. Let's think about Ireland. What does Ireland actually do? Ireland makes a lot of cash and has become a rich country, basically latterly by hosting IT firms, and there are real jobs and it's more than a brass plate. But historically, come on, corporation tax, basically stealing tax revenue from other European countries, huge part of it. Holland, exactly the same, one of the worst tax dodgers in the world. Latvia, that's money laundering for the Russians going out into global equities through Swedbank to the point that their central bank head was on charges a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of very different, shall we say, business models out there that would not benefit if Europe basically cut off its global entanglements and forced itself more to concentrate internally on basically growing the domestic market. Because that's not how they make their cash either. Right? So for a lot of those countries, even the ones that are in the German supply chains, Romania, all the rest of it, if you're not selling BMWs to the Chinese, what exactly is your future? Because that's what you're integrated into these economies to do. Now, if, if I remember correctly, uh, during the Gr Greek economic crisis, which is not, I don't know, it's not over, but it's during the depths of it, and Spain, and when there was all these runs on uh, these, these what they call the peripheral countries, uh, uh, mm -hmm. state debt and so on, a lot of it had to do with how Germany, in particular, had forced forced or created a situation where German products were so much cheaper than anything these countries could produce, they turned these countries into the consumers of Germany and the debtors of Germany. Uh, why do these countries think that this slogan of sovereign, uh, I mean, uh, strategic autonomy will make all that worse? Well, because it could just be more of the same. I mean, what you're referring to is a kind of vendor financing model, right? We buy your banks and your banks then lend you the money to buy our BMWs. And then when people lose faith in your bond markets, you can no longer pay back the BMWs, but you don't have your own currency, so you can't take the adjustment that way, so you need to do it through austerity, right? It's the short version of how that works. So you can imagine strategic autonomy if there's another big bump in the road, and uh, the EU is more kind of cut off from the world in some sense. It's not clear exactly what that would mean. Let's just say it's less reliant on exports to the rest of the world, more reliant on consumptive growth. You could tell a story where that would be better. It would be easier to accommodate an outside macroeconomic shock. It wouldn't be quite as destructive on the periphery. But, you know, essentially, it bespeaks something that is the sort of the, uh, the lover that will never speak its name, which is you're going to have to give up a ton of sovereignty to do this. Right. It's not going to be okay to just have all these national governments and national budgets and you take one or two percent of GDP and that pays for the EU and they're a standard setter. If you're doing this, you're going to have to make actual political decisions about the allocation of investment. And once you start doing that on a continent wide basis, why would the why would the small and the weak think they're going to get what they deserve? If you look at the way that the Juncker plan, which was the last big investment junket 
that was uh, spent in Europe after the financial crisis, 300 billion in investment, really about 30 billion levered up with various private sector instruments, etc. Huge amounts of it went to France. Huge amounts of it went to Germany and Italy. So it's the big countries that suck in this stuff. So the periphery basically says, particularly the small periphery, you know, what's in it for us? This way we can specialize. We understand what's going on. We trade, if you're small, you trade on taxes. You trade on a lack of transparency. You trade on uh, particular niches in the global economy. If that's all going to come in and it's going to be big investment projects decided by the big countries, that's kind of like taking us back to the 70s. We don't want to go there. And what do you make of how the European governments are dealing with the uh, deep recession, the pandemic-related economic crisis? You know, they're a bit like the Bourbons. You know, what's the line about the Bourbons again? They, they, they basically they, they learned nothing and then they learned nothing again. I forget exactly what it is. Uh, you know, so there was a great deal of and hoopdala about the, the pandemic recover, the recovery fund, the next gen fund. Uh, but when you get into it, essentially it is three years of 0.7% of GDP for the whole Eurozone spread across the whole Eurozone. So Italy's got its hands on about, I think, something in the region of about $40 billion it's going to spend in the next year. That's not a lot of cash for an economy that size. What's happened because of the fixation on rules and the inability to basically do the type of uh, expansionary programs that you see in the United States in particular is that millions of future taxpayers have left the south of the EU and gone to pastures new and may not come back. The already aging societies with with zero productivity growth become even older societies with zero productivity growth. Italy is the real danger, the real canary in the coal mine here, because Italy's debt to GDP is about 130. It could go up to 160 by the end of the pandemic. And the basic rule of thumb is so long as the rate of growth in your economy is higher than the rate of growth in your debt stock and the interest rate in the debt, growth eats debt. Right, So Olivia Blanchard did a piece in 2019 that basically showed most of the time the reason we don't worry about debt is because growth is higher than the rate of growth in the debt stock and the interest rate, so it doesn't matter. It kind of solves itself through growth. Italy hasn't grown in 20 years. Italy has no effective growth model or political growth coalition to make it happen. So this is why so much is resting on Draghi, right? Draghi the Magnificent, he's come in, he'll change the rules, he'll spend 60 billion, 100 billion, and that'll transform Italy. That's going to take a lot more than that to transform Italy because transforming the oldest demographics in Europe is not something you can do very easily, right? So you've got this big bond market and an economy that doesn't grow. That's your euro crisis from the last time sitting there waiting to happen. Now, the way that you stop this is the European Central Bank comes in and buys your bonds in the secondary market. But as far as I understand the rules, they can only do that to the extent that the whole eurozone is in deflation. So what happens if you get out of COVID? Germany starts to recover. Maybe France recovers a little bit. Your small northern European countries recover quite well. And then on average, you're no longer deflating. At that point in time, every hedge fund in the world will have shorts on Italian debt. Because they know that the central bank now can't buy it. So what's got to happen is the yields are going to blow it. We're back to where we were in 2011. And the thing is, they don't have a printing press. So they can't devalue the currency. They can't default unilaterally. So what do you have to do? Well, the other thing that Draghi set up was uh, OMT, outright monetary transactions. And they have this big slush fund of money based, I think it's in Luxembourg, uh, called uh, the European Stability Mechanism. It's got half a trillion euros on it in principle. It's got that. 
But it, that's not enough for Italy. If that bond market goes bust, right, Italian GDP multiply by 1.6, there isn't enough money in Europe to solve that problem. And if the ECB basically comes in and panic buys everything, that's kind of also telling everyone, yeah, they're bust and there's nothing we can do about it. So there's a huge liability sitting there. And it's not clear what the long-term strategy for solving it is. And what they've done so far, you know, the next-gen fund, all the rest of it, really is insufficient to kickstart the European economy to get all of it, including Italy, on such a growth trajectory that the debt really is not a problem. So I, I fear that we're back to where we were around 2011. Well, it's pretty crazy. And I mean, the European economy is more or less the same size as the American economy, isn't it? That they have the... They have the resources to do at the least totally. the kind of spending that the Biden, various Biden plans are. Uh, and and then there's no more risk of inflation in Europe, in the United States. We had this previous interview we did about inflation where you said, well, you maybe if you have crazy people running Turkey, they could have inflation, but not in the U.S. and not, not in, the, in Europe. Yet they still don't want to come up with that kind of infrastructure and, and stimulus spending. Well, you know, part of it is sort of the persistence of stupid economic ideas. I mean, you do have this sort of Northern European angst about one degree of inflation leading to the Weimar Republic, right? So there's part of that is like hardwired in. But there's a more sort of straightforward reason. If you're an export-dependent economy, stimulus spending is the last thing you want, right? Because you trade on competitiveness, you like to have a low rate of consumption in your economy, a high rate of savings, a high rate of investment, very stable labor relations, very sort of, you know, straightforward labor market transactions. You don't want any volatility in this. And if you have a government that goes in and starts spending tons of money, well, wages start going up, people start randomly moving around labor markets. All of that growth and prosperity makes your BMW more expensive. And given that margins are thin out there in the global economy, you want to maintain your market share. So if you're an exporter, you know, the type of big stimulus that you get when you're able, when you're able to do it when you're a big consumptive economy and you have your own printing press, yeah, that's an anathema to basically an, an area, an economic area, which shares a currency whose growth model is based on exports. So there's perfectly rational reasons for the North and the Eastern European countries in particular to go inflation, because what they're really saying is, if you raise our costs in any way, our business model's underwater, and we don't want that to happen. So what should be done then? There's, there's, then there's a fundamental contradiction between the interests of the countries that are going to get killed by all this and the ones that are winning. There's nothing new about that. That's been the story for some time. But right. but but if there were rational people in charge of all this, what would they do? Or is that, you know, rational people are in charge because they rationally want to make as much money as they can. And this is the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, rational people are in charge. I mean, nobody's a dummy on this. I mean, people understand the problems. But, you know, Brexit offers a nice kind of analogy to, to think about this. Right. So Britain was never really in the EU. They were never going to join the euro uh, they had a seat at the top table. They could veto anything that they didn't like. They could basically author the legislation they wanted and form coalitions to get it done. In a sense, they had a fantastic deal, right? You got free market access for 60% of your exports, blah, blah, blah. And they decided to not do that. Okay, all power to you. Now, a lot of this has been covered up by the costs of COVID, but, you know, pretty soon we'll begin to see what the costs of Brexit are. And we already know anecdotally things like the entire Scottish shellfish industry is now dead. Because what used to happen was nobody in Britain eat lobsters. They all sell them to France. 
And when you have 100% market access, you're in the EU, you stick it on a truck in the north of Scotland, you pack it with ice, and you belt it down to Dover, and it's on the table in Paris a day later, and it's still fresh. The minute you put up a border with border checks, you destroy that industry. Now, Brexit is an attempt to take two economies, the EU and Britain, that were integrated for 35 years, right, or 30 years, and you're unpicking this, right? Now try unpicking the whole European Union. And everybody shares the same currency, but everybody is a different debt market. There are multiple different models of how you generate growth and income. Some are very good, relatively speaking, such as the German and some of the East European ones. Some of them are just not. For example, Italy hasn't grown in 20 years. So what exactly is the solution? And we know part of the problem is that, in a sense, the euro is the Hotel California. Once you check in, you can't check out without destroying half a national savings, which is why even Italian populists and French populists are now not pushing on the getting out of the EU. But it's not clear how you solve that fundamental problem. You've got three big economies, Spain, France, and Italy, that are basically driven by domestic consumption, that have been living under a regime of low growth and tight budgets for 20 years. And they've accumulated a shit ton of debt, their investment's fallen off a cliff, and they're not doing well economically. Then you've got the countries in the north that basically have done really well through globalization, China's stimulus post-2008, American growth post-2014, and, and they're fine, and they like it as it is, and they don't know how to fix that other problem because their growth model is the opposite of that. And that's it, and nobody really has a good solution to this one other than, like, kick the can down the road, hope for the best. I mean, you could imagine that, to go back to the earlier point, strategic autonomy is, in a way, a sort of an attempt linguistically to recognise that problem and say we need to balance it out so that the whole Eurozone kind of grows more like one national economy, and we rationalize investment, and we look after the periphery, etc., etc. And that brings us back to the old ideas of, you know, government, econo government economic, economic government, right? But all of that is still kind of anathema to the actual bits that grow, to the Dutch, to the Germans, to the Finns. So it's just not clear how, this, how you play this out. Well, maybe the way they play it out is they continue beggar thy neighbor, meaning France and particularly Germany, uh, and they and they say, well, too bad to the poor, smaller countries of Europe because we're going to make our money exporting to China because it's a hell of a lot bigger market than you are. And if that butts us up against the U.S. that doesn't like the fact that China has just become the biggest training partner of Europe, well, we'll have strategic autonomy because we want to get rich and keep, I shouldn't get rich. We want to stay rich and get richer. We'll do that exporting to China and uh, we'll, we'll play China and the US off against each other and, you know, screw the rest of poor Europe. That, that may be one way of playing it, but I think the way that they're actually playing it is, is, is slightly different. You notice that this time around, in comparison to 10 years ago, no one is screaming for expansionary austerity. No one is saying that we should all cut our budgets now in the middle of a recession because that'll actually be good for growth, right? They tried that and it was a train wreck and it brought them a collapse of like multiple party systems across the EU. And the people who run the commission and other places, you know, they're not idiots. They're pretty smart people. And they understand that if they try this one again, it's over. 
the two largest parties in Italy, and this is simply because the party system is so fragmented, right, are the soft fascists, the Liga, and the Fratelli d'Italia, the actual, no, honestly, we're a fascist party and we're not apologizing for it, right? You put the two of them together in coalition with Forza Italia and a couple of other parties, you have a government, right? You have a, that, that's scary, right? If you think about Germany, everyone's high on the prospect of the Greens are now sort of, you know, the the, the largest party. Uh, but you're also looking at a complete meltdown in the CDU along the lines of what you've had with the SPD. And it looks like uh, the the um, Alternative for Deutschland are sneaking up in the polls again. So there's very little margin of error for getting this wrong. If you go on a big austerity diet after this one, it's game over in terms of sort of democracy in many countries. And and I think everyone really knows that. So what they're doing sotto voce, right, with very soft voice, it's kind of forgetting about the fiscal rules, kind of forgetting about debt breaks, kind of forgetting, oh, yeah, well, we're going to renegotiate. You mentioned Blanchard earlier uh, in another conversation we had. We talked about Olivier Blanchard. Yes, he's talking about inflation, but he's also talking about why don't we just forget these fiscal rules? Why don't we have a wise men council of people like me and them? We can talk about it. I don't think that's a very good idea. But nonetheless, the idea that, like, you have 60% debt to GDP, that's a good thing. Yeah, we're kind of past that. So what you've got is a de facto flexibility in policy now that you didn't have before. And that's an improvement. Is it enough to solve the problem? Probably not. But it gets you to a less crappy place. This Wall Street Journal article I quoted in the beginning, uh, you know, he talks about China investing in East European railroads and yeah. uses the word co-opting, uh, you know, whether co-opting or not, nothing's stopping the Americans from investing in East European railroads. Nothing's stopping the Europeans investing there. I mean, the reason that China is able to do this is they walk in with a bag of cash and say, hey, how about we build you a whole high-speed rail network and we build a few highways and we'll rest, reinvest in your port. And they look around in basically places like Trieste in the Adriatic and go, well, nobody else is doing it. Right, so I mean, if the EU is unable to do this, then of course they're going to take the cash from wherever they can, and and that's pretty much what the card that China has dealt with. Now, are they building their own supply? They're building their own routes to basically bypass sea routes and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, the long-term goal of Belt and Road is twofold. We keep accumulating American paper assets because we're a large exporter, even though we're now a very big consumptive economy as well. And we hate doing this because all it does is license American bad behavior because you can never get out of the dollar. Well, we're going to do three things. Number one is a digital renminbi so we can bypass American clearing and just pay people straight with our currency. And so long as they'll accept it, we should be fine. We don't seem to be macroeconomically idiotic, so that should take a bite out of it. Second one, we want to turn all these paper assets into real assets. We'll take the surplus we generate and we'll build a port in the Adriatic. We will even go to Germany and we will repair the locks on the canals that basically you've allowed to fall off because you're so obsessed with the black zero and budget balance, public investment has collapsed. So we'll basically cash bomb investment all over the place because your idiotic rules have deprived you of the ability or language to even do this. And local, we will basically turn Belgrade in our direction. They will be ordering Sinovac. They will say to hell with you in your procurement process. Now, is it because China just wants to cause trouble? No, their bigger thing is, point, point three of this, if you put all this together, a high-speed land, uh, high-speed network across Western China, across Transcaucasia, hooking up basically with uh, Eastern Europe, you can bypass the American fleet. You don't really have to worry as much about getting that choke point out there in the Pacific. 
if you can source your um, green production of like literally foodstuffs from leased land in Africa, and you can basically put that on transports, which then dock in the Adriatic and ship it the other way, why would you not do so, right? So of course they're thinking long term. They are thinking strategic autonomy. They're just doing it in Europe, right? I mean, that, you want to know what strategic autonomy looks like? That's what it looks like. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is basically it causes the United States a huge amount of trouble. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing immoral, evil. I mean, whatever is going on domestically, uh, you know, in terms of what the relations they're having, uh, certainly with Europe and that, yes, maybe they get some advantage. They get some of these countries go into debt and so on. But compared to what the U.S. has done, both militarily and economically, uh, it seems relatively benign. Uh, it's, they're just trying to grow their economy. And at the same time, we now have the problem whereby Western firms, if they say anything at all about the condition of um, the, the, the Uyghurs in the West of the country, uh, or if anyone points out that the cotton in your T-shirt comes from there, or actually my favorite one, 50% of the plastics and photovoltaics come from that region. So everybody who loves solar, you're basically supporting the repressive regime in West of China, right? So that's basically where we are. Well, anyone that buys American products is also supporting the regime that supports Saudi Arabia and Israel and go on from there. Hey, I get it, right? But from the European point of view and the point of view of European firms, they're in a land, they're, this is a landmine, right? Who, who am I pissing off by doing this, right? Do I really be the, the one who wants to be long China when all of my consumers decide that this is the worst human rights thing in the world? Right, so there are costs and benefits to doing this. It's easier to go with the U.S. This is the long-term ally. The United States, when it makes terrible mess, tends to make messes that they don't care about, like Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Rather than doing things that putatively we care about, like Western China. So there's a kind of competitive bidding up of my human rights abuses are worse than your human rights abuses. But at the end of the day, what Europe wants with strategic autonomy is exactly what you said. They want to be able to sell BMWs to the Chinese without getting called out on human rights. And they don't want to piss off the Americans enough that they lose the security guarantees because ultimately they're still getting their gas from Russia. They're not in a nice place. And, and the reason why... Uh, we care, quote unquote, we uh, about uh, human rights abuses in Western China is because Western media has made us care about human rights abuses in Western China and not human rights abuses in all the countries that are American allies. I, I'm not saying that Ch I'm not trying to prettify uh, what China does. It's just that the Americans are, are, are made like this, this kind of narrative. Americas do bad things, but for good reasons, whereas China does bad things <laughs> for bad reasons. I mean, it's a, been a BS narrative for a long time. I mean, you know, it depends how you look at this. I mean, you know, China gets a lot of crap for the surveillance society and all this sort of stuff, right? But one of the most surveilled societies in the world is Britain. Yeah. I think Britain has more cameras per head than anyone else, right? Um, so, you know, it depends on which metric you choose, right? But at the same time, I mean, honestly, are we trying to say that, like, China is therefore as free a society as Britain? I mean, you know, no. very few people in Britain get knobbed off the street by the police and disappear. You don't really take your billionaire class and defenestrate them publicly and jail them for four months. You know, there's the basic security of property rights, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, this is a regime which has taken a turn which is antithetical to the way that Western economies work. Not to fetishize democracy or anything. But when it comes to basic things for capitalism, like secure property rights, you don't have that in China. 
and you're increasingly less likely to have that. So that weighs heavily on the European scale as well. Americans may have their problems, but if you put your money there, you can get it back out. You put your money there, you have no idea what's going to happen to it. Of course, if you're China and want to buy uh, an American company, they may use national security to stop you from buying it. So, Absolutely. And they've been doing that for years. I mean, people think this is new. The Foreign Investment National Security Act came in in 2007. And back in the you're old enough to remember this as well. I mean, remember the Cold War? We had a whole slew of restrictions called COCOM, which stopped us selling stuff to the communists, right? We've now swapped this out for FACTA on finance and for the whole export control regime that goes on for, like, tech. Same shit, different smell. Well, I guess part of what I'm saying is whatever you make of the morality to all this, and I don't think there's much morality on the when it comes to human rights on the Chinese or the American side, although granted domestically, if you're not black and living in a poor part of America, you do have some democratic rights. If you are living in a black or Latino- uh, You are completely policed in an authoritarian manner, absolutely. And, 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 totally. and, and probably you know, killed in a way that, I don't know, it may happen in China, but not, not the same way anyway. Anyway, all that being said, I don't think the Europeans actually really care that much about human rights anywhere when it comes to their trade and finance policy. So I, the U.S. is going to have trouble winning this one. You know, I, there was a document by BlackRock, the big asset management company, put out a couple of years ago. And in it, it said the countries of the world will have to decide what side they're on, the U.S. or China. And I, you know, I don't think that's, they're not going to do it. Certainly Europe is not going to say, oh, we're with the Americans against China. I don't see how the Americans yeah. win this rivalry. There's a, so there's a thing in the world called international relations theory, which is this product of the American Academy, which essentially was a kind of like, how do we think about how good we are in the Cold War? And uh, they had this these distinctions about what countries did under balancing conditions in the global economy and this anarchy. And I always thought this was quite good. So the first one is, you know, you balance against them. So you imagine Europe and the United States balancing against China. And the other one is bandwagoning, right? So you jump on the bandwagon because that's the way the train's going. But there's also two others which Europe are really good at. The first one is transcending. That is to say, you just pretend shit doesn't happen. Right? They're just really good at pretending things aren't happening, right? And the other one is hiding. You just basically hide. So the European strategy has always been transcending and hiding. And they are being forced now to choose between balancing and bandwagoning. It's very hard for them to bandwagon with China fully. It's just a very different system. And if your economies grow th through things increasingly like the protection of pro intellectual property rights, the rents accrued from patents, all the rest of it, you're getting into bed with a regime that's never going to play well that way, whereas you will with the Americans. Uh, on the other side, you know, what really makes the advantage for China is if China credibly commits to, you know, basically doing something about climate in a serious way, they'll probably will. Because they have that kind of authoritarian advantage. I mean, if the Chinese Communist Party says, next year, no diesel cars. Next year, no diesel cars. No diesel, no. Nah. We in the United States have this terrible, terrible system called democracy, which has its advantages. But also, basically, I, there's a piece that I did in Foreign Policy recently with Tom Oatley called the Carbon Coalition. It talks about this. If you map the Republican vote, basically, it's just it's, it's states that have carbon as their business model. 
right? Extraction, refinement, you know, all the rest of it. And this is climate change is an existential threat to, to North Dakota, to Texas, to these states. And they're doubling down against climate change. They're putting taxes on wind investments when when Biden's plans trying to give them more investment incentives and stuff. And China just looks at this and just goes, what are you doing? You people are dancing around physics. This is nonsense. So the way that, to me, America's weak point is in four years' time, we vote in Trump 2.0. And if you do that, all the climate stuff goes out the window again. At that point, America has zero credibility in climate going forward for the next 20 years. And everybody who actually accepts that this is a real thing then bandwagons with China because they're the only big player that matters. And America loses its technological edge on that side as well. And that, that to me, is the big worry. And it's also what worries the Europeans. They are deeply concerned that America cannot actually cash the checks that it's signing just now when it comes to commitments on trade and climate because of its verbal domestic politics. And, well, China's got the other problem, which is they better get serious about coal because right now coal's expanding, not decreasing in China, and they won't have much credibility on climate either. No, absolutely. But Xi did come out, to, for what it's worth, about six weeks ago and say, no more coal, Belt and Road, stage two, no more coal, we got to get past this. Well, if they do that, then the equation you just elaborated really kicks in, because even the Biden plan uh, is pretty weak on climate in spite of all the rhetoric. I did this interview with Bob Poland, and we went through the infrastructure plan. And, right. and he's, he thinks only about a third of that plan is, has anything to do with reducing carbon emissions. And then you look at uh, building retrofitting, which is one of the mm -hmm. easiest, big, biggest- Big, easy ones, right. It's a third of it. Like, just do it, right. We know how to retrofit buildings. Well, they're targeting 2 million homes. I mean, 2 million homes is not even a, a mid-sized city. I guess maybe it is a mid right. or smaller city. I mean, it's not a serious commitment, 2 million homes for retrofitting. But, you know, given everything else that we've spent money on in, in, in the past two, what is it, a year and a half, um, it's a small line item, but, you know, it's better than denying that it's not happening. It's a foot in the door that you can build on. It's proof of concept, you know, that, that it matters at that level. But the, but the difference, again, is, is China. I mean, you know, I perf can, can conceive a world in which, you know, they just say 2030, no more diesel. That's it. No more diesel. You you get caught driving a diesel, you're in trouble. Right? No negotiation. And that I'm not them saying that you know I applaud that, etc. But that's a credible commitment. Whereas if you're just going to flop between insufficient and denial, then you have no credibility at all. Well, let me just say that it's not it's not much of a democracy. And, you know, let's say the formal veneer of democracy. Yes. But it's not much democracy when big money so controls the outcome of elections, including fossil fuel money and so on. Yeah. You know, what's democratic about having a policy that's going to destroy throw, civilized throw life? Jerry, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Throw in gerrymandering, throw in all the rest of it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, we should downgrade ourselves very much on where we stand amongst the world's democracies, no doubt. Uh, but at the end of the day, to return to Europe, right? You know, you've got a semi-functioning polity, at least half the time, and you've got relatively secure property rights, and if you put your money in, you can get it out. On the other hand, you may have, to be proven, uh, a credible commitment on climate, which is tremendously important, but everything else is kind of orthogonal to the way that you organize your economy and society. It's very hard to get in the bed with that. So they're stuck in the middle. All right, so I got a proposal to you. Um, another session 
another day. Because when we reach the conclusion of these kinds of conversations, the conclusion I reach is there is no solutions for these things under capitalism. Certainly not the capitalism that exists, and I don't know what other capitalism there is. I mean, this is what it is because this is how capitalism evolves. Um, and some form of socialism, can we get there? That's a whole other story. But these problems that we, we're reaching, you know, our conversations end, whether it's Europe, whether it's climate, whether it's China, I mean, like everything ends with, it, with the phrase, I, I think I'm quoting you, it's not clear how they're going to do this. Well, I, I but, think it's not clear how they're going to do this because they can't. Well, I put it a different way, and I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, all you need to do is spend five minutes in a faculty meeting with other people with PhDs to realize that collective decision-making by bright people who think they know what they're doing can be a total disaster. So well, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, oh, hold, hold on. on, hold on, no, 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 I no, just no. Want you to got to talk, I get to talk, I get to talk now. I just no, want to no. talk about academics. Well, who the hell do you think are technocrats? Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, they're the That's worst the in the world just, for just that. A, yeah, and what do you have, what about all the technocrats that have brought us like so many good things over the past several years, like central bank independence and chronically low inflation and low wages and massive inequality? They're the best and the brightest from the best universities. When it comes to sort of you know let's all have a plan and stick to it, I'm deeply skeptical. Maybe part of the human condition is just muddling through, that we somehow manage to get somewhere. We're not dead yet, and that's basically the best we can hope with because I, I, I just get deeply fearful when I hear, and the only way to do this is socialism because it's this big empty signifier that I don't know what it means, I don't know what it contains, and it usually contains people like me deciding really big things that they don't know enough about to actually make those decisions. So I just get nervous with that one. All right, so another day. You got it. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. <laughs> I was just all I all I was going to say is I've I'm I've I didn't even go to university, but I have been in some of those meetings with academics. Right. It's all I, I they're almost a different species for how bad it is to try to get an outcome out of one of those meetings. So, what, what do you think? God, what, what do you think? Goss plan was it was a bunch of academics with slide rules. No wonder it was a disaster. <laughs> All right, well, we'll do that. We'll fight this out another time. Because I think there may we be... We shall a, indeed. I think they're actually... We, we are now on the verge, at least theoretically, of having forms of socialism that don't become those bureaucratized, overly centralized, and often police states. So I, I don't think that's inevitable the, the best The best book on this is uh, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which is basically techno-utopia for the left. So you might want to have a look at that one and then reflect on the fact that if you take the social goals out of it, which people like us would agree with, all you're left with is a kind of like Hollywood, Silicon Valley, AI will solve everything. Nobody needs to work. And I don't believe that in the normal world. So I don't see why I should believe it in a left wing one. But there we go. All right. There we go. All right. Thanks again, Mark. Cheers. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button and subscribe and share. And we'll see you again soon. Bye.